0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast.
1: So tonight's event will um, begin with a keynote address by Dr. Radhakrishna, After that, Professor John Shields and I will offer a few comments that will bring the contemporary Australian context into our conversation. I'll then chair a short panel discussion. So to begin tonight's conversation, I'd like to invite Dr. Shabana Radhakrishna to deliver the keynote address. Dr. Radhakrishna is Chief Functionary of the Gandhian Forum for Ethical Corporate Governance in India. She spent part of her life in Gandhiji's Sevagram Ashram in rural Maharashtra and is committed to spreading Gandhiji's message of truth and nonviolence around the world. Thank you, Dr. Radhakrishna.
0: Namaskar. My first obeisance is to God Almighty who has inspired me to take up this task. My second obeisance is to the Mahatma, the great soul, whose life enlightens us all from inside out, whose faith and endeavor can be a role model for all of us at all times and in all ages. And my third obeisance is to the Lokatma, to all of you, whose eyes give me strength. I'm here for the first time in my life. I'm visiting Australia and as I was introduced, I was born in Mahatma Gandhi's ashram in Sevagram. My parents, my father especially, spent... 21 years with Mahatma Gandhi and from a very young age, he continued to be a student of Gandhi, interested in Satyagraha and Sarvodaya and he became the first principal of the basic education program or Naitalim, Talim, ji's revolutionary ideas of education and even After Gandhi passed away for the next 60 odd years along with him we have continued to tread on the path Gandhi has shown to the world doing Gandhi's work which he showed to the humanity because he said my life is my message so there is so much to learn from his life for all of us. Two thousand. 18 October, we started the celebration for the 150th birth anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi. It was 150 years ago, on 2nd October 1869, that he was born in the western part of India in a place called Porbandar in Saurashtra. Today is also the 150th birth anniversary of his wife, Kasturba Gandhi. She was merely six months older than him. And I pay my respects to Kasturba Gandhi on this occasion because she was the woman behind Mohandas who helped him to become the Mahatma that he became. They were married for 62 years and the journey they must have had is amazing, and the transformation that must have taken place at every stage in his life. And she was the witness, she was the partner, she was supporting him, she was looking after his own children while he continued to grow and progress every day. So, Gandhiji or Mahatma Gandhi. Or Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, which is his name, his faith was in truth, the ultimate reality of truth, and he endeavored to attain it through non violence throughout his life till the very last breath. And the very last breath he took on 30th January 1948 when he accepted three bullets on his chest by the assassin and had forgiveness in his heart perhaps for him. So his faith was in in truth, the ultimate reality of truth and for him, truth was the complete form of God. He was a religious man, his God was truth and the religion that he followed was that of service to humanity perhaps the greatest source of his strength was in his faith in god that faith gave him two constant understanding or awareness firstly that he was nothing to be but an instrument in god's hands and he had to he was to go wherever God led him, on the path of truth that was available to him in whichever forms and measures. And in that journey, he discovered that he had to constantly gaze inwards through introspection for finding inspiration. Today, I will be speaking for a very short time Generally, my speeches are longer than that and I introduce a lot of things about Mahatma Gandhi which are not found in books because it is based on my understanding, our experience and what my father told me about it. But because of the shortage of time, I will be just introducing his principles which are universal and not bound by time, space or geographical boundaries, the truth, non-violence and purity of means are his principles, they are valid in every place in this planet. Purity of means is something new for people because even while while he was alive, his insistence was on purity of means, which means whatever your goals are, your means also have to be the same. If you want to reach a goal which you have total conviction about, the means also have to be similar therefore truth was his goal and nonviolence became his means and later on they both merged and what was born was satyagraha or nonviolent resistance gandhi called himself a practical idealist he was an idealist But unless whatever he heard, whatever he read or saw, unless he put it into practice, he was not satisfied. So for Mahatma Gandhi, the driving force was action. He walked the talk. He had said that an ounce of practice is worth more than tons of preaching. Albert Einstein, who was watching him, observing him from a distance, was very, very astonished by this man and he wrote a lot while he was working out his theories. In the margins of his notebook, we see a lot of things written about Mahatma Gandhi. One of the things is this, which makes a lot of sense, and generally I play the audio, perhaps it's not available today. But it was Albert Einstein who had said that generations to come will scarcely believe that such a man in flesh flesh and blood ever walked on this earth he was with us merely 70 years ago but in these 70 years we have moved at a very fast pace at his time also there were lots of challenges the world the two world wars, the holocaust and the atomic bomb, when the world was torn apart by hatred and violence, there was this man who stood alone as a beacon of peace with a voice of sanity, who absolutely seemed apart from the entire turmoil Waving the flag of peace and non-violence. So we move on to how his leadership was. Mahatma Gandhi had said, and in fact, he was the most powerful and influential political leader and thinker of the 20th century whose legacy still remains alive. Now, if you see one of the slides which will come after this, you will see the transformation of Mahatma Gandhi from a very young barrister to a political leader and social organizer to some... to On the other hand, to someone who set standards in all the things that he was doing, he was a servant leader. And by being a role model, Mahatma Gandhi could cultivate public opinion that truth and nonviolence were integral to the life of the country. He had also said that I suppose leadership at one time meant muscle, but today it means getting along with people. Now a simple thing like getting along with people is so important in governance, in day-to-day life in our family lives and in all the institutions and corporates and business one needs to get along with people first. One of the qualities of servant leader that we see in Mahatma Gandhi and then I have about 10 characteristics of Gandhi as a servant leader. First and foremost is his spirituality and selflessness, voluntary self-suffering, self-sacrifice and feeling oneness with everybody. For Gandhi, truth was an immediate presence. It is not visible or people do not understand it immediately. They cannot see that ultimately we are all Part of the same human family. We all are brothers and sisters. Wherever we may be, whatever we do in one corner of the planet impacts others in the other part of the world. But for Mahatma Gandhi, he could see oneness with everybody. Therefore, he carried no hatred against anybody. He did not want to take any revenge. He did not want to prove any point. He extended the same courtesy, respect and love for everyone. The other qualities of the spiritual leader was his integrity, in which we see that There was no difference between his individual conduct and public life. It was the same thing. He defined truth in simple terms. Utter as you think and act as you utter. That means harmony between your thoughts, words and deeds. For him was truth. And maybe people can start experimenting, but because Gandhi's autobiography is known as My Experiments with Truth. So here we are, all of us, we can experiment it and see how true it is. We also see simplicity one something which is so lacking in these days and being one with the people he served that is one quality which endeared him to everybody he also had empathy for people felt compassion and love he was able to understand the needs of his followers my father told me that Gandhi was not a great speaker, but there was no better listener than Gandhi. He could even hear the unspoken words of his adversary. He had the courage of conviction. That is one of the very great qualities in him that we see That he stood by his convictions fearlessly and spent the rest of the time, rest of his life walking that path which was like a razor's edge. It's a very testing path, but this man walked on that path fearlessly and courageously. He remained steadfast and did not compromise at any point with truth. So for him, as a spiritual politician, the concept of service of man, he said, is service to God. Experiencing a sense of oneness even with the adversaries, and that's a very unique, quality of Mahatma Gandhi which needs to be understood. Since he had no enemies, the entire effort was to convince through a dialogue up to the adversary that whatever he was doing was unjust. Therefore he was able to bring in an element of fearlessness and spirituality in his work. If we look at Gandhi as the benchmark of the authentic leader, what do we see? Self-awareness and simplicity. Who can be simpler than that? Punctuality and sincerity. He was very punctual. In fact, our friend uh, Mr. Horace Alexander Called him the slave of watch. And in the ashram, at one time, my father had counted the bell 56 times, it used to ring. He was so punctual, he was disciplined and prompt. He was dedicated to service. He was a very soft spoken person, extended the utmost courtesy to people. He lived through voluntary poverty, which is what he chose as his environmental credo. Now is the time for us to return back to basics, because the carbon footprints that we are leaving for the next generation are really going to harm them. He was a very hard-working, sincere and efficient person. There was absolute transparency and accountability in each of the things he did. His life was an open book and we see integrity and foresight because he had what we call as calmness of mind, serenity, some entire space where he could introspect, listen to the inner voice of the conscience and that's what we and everybody needs to do, there is this silent warning which keeps us, silent voice which keeps us warning about the wrong things that we do, the mistakes that we make, it's only that we ignore to hear that, that is drowned in the sounds of so many thoughts that keep crossing our minds at every time therefore calmness of mind and spending time in prayers and meditation even if it is for 10 minutes is very very essential to ask a question that question has been asked in our civilization for the past 5000 years And that is, who am I? Each and everybody, whatever they may be doing in life, needs to ask that question of himself. Who am I? And what am I doing? That is to be asked every morning and night. And we have to be very grateful for the time that has been given to us. Because Gandhi said that time is more valuable than money. Time is the only non-renewable resource that all of us have. Therefore, what we see in him, that he used each and every moment of time in working, he treated all work as God-given work. And that kind of spirituality, selflessness, non-attachment and non-position is what made him stand apart but this is all part of our ancient wisdom. He just put it into practice. He said, I have nothing new to teach. Truth and non-violence are as old as hills. I am merely putting them applying them into new fields like economics, education, society, politics, religion and so on. So he confessed very very frankly that it was his actions in newer fields and even today we all need to try it on in newer fields. He did what he could at that time. It is our chance now to make that change that we want to see in the world. Talking about the transformational leadership of Gandhi, there was 10 ways in which he reached the hearts of the people. But before that, I see that you have something with Dr. Jean Sharp wrote and uh, I need a sip of water, so you can read it till then, please. Dr. Sharpe's writings based on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s work and Mahatma Gandhi's life and thought inspired countless people from the new generation to practice non-violence as a strategy in their fight against injustice. Arnold Toynbee, he also wrote something very, very important. And with great conviction, he said that Gandhi's effect on human history is going to be greater and more lasting than Stalin's or Hitler's. And that's what we are saying. We are all craving for peace, harmony, for a wonderful planet which we can hand over back to our children. So while I was talking about 10 ways he reached the hearts of the people, because he was able to communicate, intricate things in very simple ways. He was not a man of many words, there was very few things that he said. But his action spoke for itself, and that endeared him to the common people. Because he was only speaking the truth and following his duty. So there was absolute transparency and integrity in whatever he was doing. He was also empathizing with people's hopes and aspirations, and he understood. That common people of India from 1915 onwards, because we were slaves for 190 years, the common aspiration was to be free people, to be able to govern ourselves the way we had been doing for so many centuries. He also understood the suffering of people and he led them to freedom. Through the nonviolent freedom struggle, and he walked the talk. While addressing the business community in 1921, he saw that many people were earning money and doing good things to help the people. So he told them to come together, and he formed a federation called FIKI, Federation of Indian industries, or something, addressing the fourth annual general body meeting, he told them that it is wrong to think that business is incompatible with ethics. I know that it is perfectly possible to carry on one's business profitably and yet honestly and truthfully. But for that, he warned voluntary discipline is the first requisite of corporate freedom he was the one who gave the world the word trusteeship and this trusteeship he understood from our scripture the great scripture the bhagavad gita in which they talk about non possession and non-attachment. So Gandhi developed these thoughts into the principle of trusteeship. He advised the rich people and the businessmen to use to become trustees of the poor, use as much as they need it and leave the rest for the benefit of others in the society. He also advised them to seek the society's permission before spending public money. Whenever for his movements he was handling public money, he made sure that he did not take money disproportionate to the institution's needs. He kept the accounts open and maintained it very clearly. He also said that people should be allowed to see the accounts whenever they want. This more than 100 years ago, he was setting standards for all of us. Now we need to question ourselves whether we are following it or there are conflict of interest that we are falling uh, into and is that a trap and the very easy way out which he has suggested is just to say no to injustice. You just have to be very firm and say no. That will solve the problem. So more on trusteeship, but I do not have the time now. And I would also say that his characteristics of virtue ethics were polite behavior, humility, hard work, calmness of mind, serenity, respecting people, glorious self-sacrifice, efficiency, responsibility, leading by example. Now being ever vigilant, that's what is required, one has to be ever awake, sleeping over something will not do for Gandhi, one has to be ever vigilant and he was a person who used to work for 18 to 20 hours, not for money, not for position, not for any wealth, it is merely for the love of serving humanity. So here is a role model for all of us who has set standards. We can start acting from any point and then see whether it makes any difference or not. He advised to shun seven social evils. Politics without principles, wealth without work, commerce without ethics, knowledge without character pleasure without conscience, science without morality, worship without sacrifice. He also said the leader is useless when he acts against the prompting of his own conscience. So the main thing is how one can listen to that small voice of conscience because whatever you are doing, doing, whether you are uh, dealing with your personal life or one is doing business or one is in a corporate sector, that voice is always there. So it is something to listen to that voice. And I want to end with a very small story that my father had told me, that in 1931, During Gandhi's stay in Belunue in Switzerland, he met Pierre Serisole, the great pacifist leader. Gandhi had heard about Serisole's movement but desired to hear from the man himself. So Pierre told him that during the war, a village schoolmaster had refused to serve his three months as conscript in the name of Jesus Christ. For this, he was first put in a lunatic asylum and then he was sent to jail. But Pierre was deeply impressed by this example and followed the same path. Many others followed and then many men refused the conscription service. Seri Sule said, told Gandhiji that all wanted to serve as citizens but not as army men. He established Service Civil International which is active even today and does constructive work in various parts of the world. And this constructive work is Gandhi's second gift to humanity? First being Satyagraha, and the third one being Ekadashabrata, or 11 observances for cultivating the inner qualities. Gandhi told Sirisole about his experience in South Africa and India. Now, Sirisole said, I am afraid, Mr. Gandhi, our people in Europe are not like yours in India are not ready for such acts as these? There was a pause. And then, in an infinitely low and gentle voice, as though sorry for the terrific rebuke that he was implying, Gandhi said, "Are you sure it is the people who are not ready, Mr. Serisole? Oh, explain, exclaimed Pierre, and we were all silent. Accepting the challenge, wrote Muriel Lester, who was a witness to this conversation. Pierre said, I see what you mean. You are right. It is we who are failing. It is leadership that we lack. Is that what you mean, Mr. Gandhi? In the same small voice, Gandhi answered, I must confess, Mr. Serisole. I do not seem to have come across leaders in Europe, not of the sort that the times call for. Pierre said, tell us what qualities you think a leader for this age would need. Realization of God every minute of 24 hours, announced Gandhi. And if a man asked, what do you mean by God, Mr. Gandhi? So that man said, I would answer, truth is God and the way to find him is non-violence. I thank you very much for your gift, a most valuable gift, which is of your time, the only non-renewable resource that all of us have and I thank the CGI in Sydney I thank the University of Sydney and all my friends who have made this possible. Thank you very much. Um, we'll
1: follow up on some of those thoughts in the conversation. But what the plan for this evening was to uh, move from... Um, an exposition on Gandhian ethics and values and bring it into the kind of contemporary moment. So I'm going to begin my comments by making the very obvious point that as we live in a post-truth era bombarded by overwhelming amounts of fake news and a spiral of new and unexpected often forms of violence, Gandhi's core values or his core message of truth and nonviolence, the practice of diversity, dialogue, and mutual respect are absolutely countercultural. And I was thinking when um, you put up that list of the seven social sins, um, they were all too familiar in terms of what we observe around us. But I think the point that um, Dr. Radhakrishnan made that these values of Gandhi were in fact forged in equally disturbing times in an era of state-sponsored racism in South Africa and the violence of British imperialism as well as um, world wars. In this context of violence and inequality, Gandhi developed his very particular leadership style. He spoke truth to power and approached the task of social transformation from an ethical point of view that Dr. Radhakrishna has outlined for us. His leadership practice, and I think that's really important, it's a, it was a practice, it was activated, it was not just thought about. His practice centred on truth and non violence, mutual respect, and dialogue as a pathway, as the pathway to change. In contemporary Australia, uh, there is much talk about a crisis of leadership and a concern about the lack of ethical behaviour in our key financial, religious, and human service institutions. And John will talk more about that in a minute. But I would suggest that there are also signs of hope. When we shift our line of sight and focus on what is happening closer to the grassroots, there is some evidence, even here in Australia, of a Gandhian approach to leadership. First, there's been the two climate strikes led by students. These were non-violent protests that spoke truth to power. Students walked out of their classroom and made their claim for public action on climate change, and the powerful didn't like it. Patronising commentary by many politicians and others in positions of power argued that the students should be in school and that their their non-violent protest was inappropriate. Nevertheless, and thankfully, the students marched and made their voices heard. They led where our elected leaders had failed. The other recent example of Gandhian style leadership that comes to my mind is Sally McManus, Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. In the first television interview she gave after her appointment as Secretary, McManus outlined her agenda to tackle inequality and stagnant wages growth. She argued that the union movement needed to uh, disrupt the current balance of power and that the rules of industrial relations needed to change in favor of working people. In making her case, she said that where the laws of the land were unfair and promoted economic inequality, then she was prepared to break those laws and to pay the penalty. This is Gandhian leadership 101. Premised upon an ethic of fairness and justice for the people, Gandhi advocated peaceful civil resistance and non-cooperation with state power. And this was most clearly and creatively expressed in the famous Salt March of 1930. This style of non-violent but militant leadership was not accepted by the authorities in India then. Over 60,000 people were jailed as a result of the Salt Satyagraha. And it was criticised fervently here by many in the business and political world uh, who labelled McManus both a lunatic and dangerous. And yet this is the leadership style that galvanised the Indian independence movement, which ultimately saw Britain withdraw from India. My second reflection on what more we have to learn from Gandhi focuses on the practice of diversity, Again, this is a compelling issue of our time. Recent events in Christchurch, as well as everyday forms of division and hate are all around us, make it very clear that we urgently need to learn the practice of diversity. We need to learn how to do this in our public spaces, in our politics, in our workplaces, and in our universities. The Gandhian principle of Savadharma, the integration and equality of all faiths and all people, is a call to dialogue, to mutual respect, synthesis, and deep engagement with our communities. In my research on informal worker movements in India and community labour organising here in Sydney, I've seen this um, this principle in action and have documented the ways in which the practice of diversity and mutual respect promotes dignity, participation, and ultimately human flourishing. The Self-Employed Women's Association, or SAVA, is an all-women's Indian union for informal workers that operates within the Gandhian tradition. Members are those who are employed um, as agricultural workers, as forestry workers, dairy workers, craft workers, embroiderers, construction workers small-scale vendors, daily labourers, and paper pickers. Members of the union work in all manner of industries and practice every major world religion. The daily practice of diversity, through mutual respect and dialogue, has allowed the union to build in size and power and currently has a membership of more than 2 million. At SAVA, every union meeting begins with a prayer session including prayers from all the religious traditions. This practice promotes respect and dialogue amongst women of all backgrounds. So I'm not suggesting that we start all our occasions with um, a prayer meeting, um, even as good an idea as that might be for some of us. But I guess it really prompts a question, and that is what would the daily practice of diversity Based on mutual respect and dialogue look for us, look like for us here in Australia. What practices do we need to engage in to promote dialogue and to promote mutual, mutuality? Developing an everyday practice of diversity, mutual respect and dialogue is an urgent challenge for contemporary leadership and it needs to go beyond the mathematics of proportional representation as important as this is. Quotas and targets for diversity in leadership positions is one step on the pathway to an inclusive society. But I think Gandhi's legacy is to provoke deeper thinking about the practice of diversity in our organisations, our institutions and in our neighbourhoods. To provoke authentic debate and consensus building amongst all Australians. So to take the discussion further, I now want to invite Professor John Shields um, to offer his comments. John is Academic Director International at the University of Sydney Business School. He's a member of the Business School Dean's Executive Committee and Chair of the School's Faculty Board and is Professor of Human Resource Management and Organisational Studies in the Discipline of Work and organi- Organisational Studies at the Business School. Thanks, John. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Shalana. uh, Superb presentations. Um, I'm doing the the Trailer Act, and um, I don't want to come across as a prophet of gloom, uh, but uh, corporate Australia is corporate Australia. So here we go. I've called my paper, Time for a Gandhian Turn in Australian Corporate Culture. I think it is time for a turn. And I think the Gandhian ethic does have some key highlights for us to contemplate positively. A decade ago, at the, in the wake of the global financial crisis, a Harvard University professor, um, Srikant Datar, issued a clarion call for a new way of educating business and management students and leaders. What Datar was calling for was a movement away from teaching business students about knowing stuff about things, away from that towards educating them to do and educating them to be. So the doing and the being was critical to that clarion call. In his view, in Dada's view, knowing how to read a balance sheet, well, you needed to do that, but it was nowhere enough to be an effective leader in an organisational context where sustainability was crucial what he was arguing for was developing graduates who could read, that is understand, both themselves and others and to act ethically and responsibly as well as effectively. It might not be a particularly surprising formula, but in the context of the time and in the context of what was going on in corporate america in the lead out from the global financial crisis and frankly what had gone on in us business schools and some australian business schools around what was important in management education it was a radi- a call for a radical shift and that call to focus on the doing and the being as opposed to just the knowing side of management education actually carried really strong echoes of the 2007 United Nations Principles for Responsible Management Education. I think there's a connection there. So there are six UN Principles for Responsible Management Education. I'll read just two of them to you, the first two. I think they're both utterly salient to our dialogue here tonight. The first one, Principle 1 of the UN Principles of Responsible Management Education purpose We will develop the capabilities of students to be the future generators of sustainable value for business and society at large and to work for an inclusive and sustainable global economy purpose The second principle was values We will incorporate into our our, our academic activities curricula and organizational practices The values of global social responsibility as portrayed in the international, in international initiatives such as the UN global compact. I actually think that that is immensely powerful. And when you confront neophyte business students with that proposition, there is an audible intake of breath, if not a gasp about what they're buying into. Of course, business school academics and academics elsewhere have continued to come up with new theories of leadership that carry the same cadences as the UN principles and Datar's clarion call. Stewardship theory, servant leadership theory, authentic leadership, quiet leadership, Susan Cain's book, The Power of Quiet is a book that I'd urge you all to read. It has a a very moving uh, narrative uh, about um, um, pacifist civil rights activists in the United States long before Martin Luther King came to prominence. And the list of leadership theories that academics have co-created goes on and on. But here is the problem. If that is our message as to what is important in business and management education, unfortunately, the evidence that we are having, the sort of effect that we had hoped to have, is not there. It is not there in any clearly discernible way. So let me flick to the prophet of doom or gloom mode. Not to put, put too fine a point on it, I think it is fair to say that we still have a heart of darkness in Australian corporate culture, with apologies to Conrad. We have a lingering culture of greed and callous disregard for others that would make a Gordon Gecko blanch or blush. The Hayne Royal Commission into misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry revealed, I think, what can only be described as an abject failure of leadership on the part of executives, company board members, and, and this is the most depressing part of all, and on the part of the regulators who we had entrusted with being gatekeepers for corporate honesty. And the inevitable has happened. The community's faith in some of our country's biggest corporations has been damaged, perhaps irreparably. There's an index that's produced each year. It's called the the Governance Institute Ethics Index, and it gauges Australians' attitudes and perceptions about ethics in organizations and in industries and in occupations. The most recent index was based on. Evidence gathered midway through last year, midway through 2018, at the height of the Royal Commission. And that index, which is again an annual index, it's been done, I think, three times now, that index fell six points from 41 points to 35 points over the course of the previous year. Primarily dragged down by changing attitudes about. Banking, finance, and insurance. And that was the industry that rated the lowest on the ethics index. Its score dropped dramatically compared to 2017, and the score ended up being minus 15. That industry has never scored so badly in any of the previous results, and 55% of respondents to the survey considered the sector unethical. You probably didn't need me to tell you that but it's worthwhile reflecting on that. What I I want to do is to have a shot at offering you a series of explanations for that phenomenon. I'm going to highlight four things. I'm not for a moment claiming that this is a comprehensive analysis or a set of answers to the problem that the Royal Commission put clearly before us, but four points I'll make. We can, we can argue about these later. The first point is this, that executive pay continues to incentivize and reflect excess rather than effectiveness. Above all else, it reflects managerial power, status seeking, and institutionalized rent seeking. In terms of reported earnings, ASX 200 CEOs earn approximately 100 times what ordinary full-time average wage and salary earners earn in Australia, about 100 times. Yes, that's about a third of the gap in the US, but I actually think that gap is understated by the reported earnings of CEOs in Australia because there is clear evidence that the wealth stream that flows to them from the very loose element in reporting that relates to equity ownership, grossly understates the wealth stream that flows to them. And we can talk about that later if you like. So I think executive pay is a problem. It isn't just the sales commissions paid to insurance brokers. And the case is as well, that whatever the rhetoric of the company boards, Very few company boards gear their CEO pay to criteria other than shareholder value. It's very rare to see in any of the top Australian companies a performance hurdle that specifies, for example, workforce wellbeing or environmental sustainability. It's starting to creep in, but there was a revolt Um, at an AGM, I think it was a Westpac AGM a couple of years ago when the board itself proposed that there be um, a measure uh, around uh, workplace wellbeing and it was tossed out by the the AGM. So that's CEO pay. The second area where I think we have major problems to, to wrestle with are in the boardroom itself. Australian company boards are getting microscopically better at opening their doors to capable women. But we are still a long way off practicing the sort of diversity that I think a Gandhian ethic would suggest we should be aspiring to. The boardroom is still an Anglo club, it's not exclusively a boys' club anymore, but there's some evidence to suggest that there's also a women's club emerging. It's an Anglo club. Research done by my dean and um, some um, close colleagues last year indicated that in terms of demographic diversity, Australian boards do very badly in terms of diversity around ethnicity. So they're still not open to folk who are not from the Anglosphere. The third point I want to make is that I think it's still the case, if you scratch the surface, that you will find that many Australian organisation leaders and many ordinary Australians, I shudder to hear myself say this, but I believe it's true, still revere the dark triad of leadership qualities. What am I talking about? I'm talking about these characteristics, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. That is the dark triad. You don't need me to name any names here but I'll bet you can think of several prominent world political leaders who tick all three of those boxes fairly well. There is some evidence that narcissism and Machiavellianism, forget about psychopathy for a minute, is related positively in some respects to organisational effectiveness. There is not one skerrick of evidence to suggest that that effectiveness is sustainable it is meteoric the impact is short term and there's usually a price to pay by the organization and its stakeholders in the long run from putting into the driver's seat in um, an executive role um, leaders and they are usually male who are narcissistic machiavellian operators um, and who have a psychopathic um, approach to treating other human beings as mere objects and resources to be manipulated. So that's the third. I hope I'm not depressing you. The fourth one, and I think this is the most profound one, and it does speak directly to Shobana's um, presentation. I think the corporate gatekeepers in Australia and we academics in Australian universities are still too enamoured of Western ethical frameworks. So if I asked a first-year student, okay, so tell me the name of two ethical frameworks that you know anything about, I will bet you London to a brick on that they will say consequentialism and deontology or Kantianism. Consequentialism basically says that the ends justify the means. Deontology basically reifies process. Those philosophical precepts wind their way through the corporate governance principles that the ASX has released, that the Australian Institute of Company Directors has released, they are Western-framed philosophical and ethical precepts. And arguably, because we live in a world that is not 1950 anymore, we live in a world that's volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, which is what we tell our students, arguably, those philosophical precepts that are enlightenment, that are artifacts of the European Enlightenment, Are not where we need to be in terms of ethical position or ethical thinking. So, as you probably guessed, I agree with my two co presenters that the time has come for us to think in a totally open minded way about alternative ethical frameworks that might help us to address those profound shortcomings that inquiries like the Hain Royal Commission, and I fear that inquiries like the current. Royal Commission uh, into um, aged care and certainly that the uh, in, that the, the um, Com- Royal Commission of inquiry into um, uh, child abuse I see that th- that there is a need for us to think very differently about what is what is appropriate in terms of ethical behavior although I wouldn't have argued this ten years ago, because I was very much into a Kantian deontological frame, I do now think that there is worth in, ha- in revisiting an Aristotelian virtue ethic approach. The thing I am absolutely unreconciled to do about in relation to that, however, is the underlying Athenian elitism that informs that model and the fact that it essentially is a proposition for ethical predestination, that you can't change who you are, you are stuck with it. I, d- I can't accept that. I'm an educator. We have to believe that we can change things, people's thinking for the better. So I've given you four speculative reasons why I think we are in the in the heart of darkness that we still find ourselves in with Corporate Australia. Um, I would like to think, though, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. and um, I would suggest that the time has come for us to think positively in an open-minded way about um, what Elizabeth and Shobana have shared with us about the potential for taking a Gandhian frame of thinking here. And I'm thinking in particular of the Gandhian emphasis on authenticity as opposed to celebrity and conceit. I'm thinking about the Gandhian emphasis on transparency as opposed to deceit. Um, and subterfuge. I'm thinking about the Gandhian emphasis on integrity as opposed to intrigue and insincerity. For me, the word that sums all that up is trusteeship. I like the ideal of trusteeship because it speaks to some of those Western approach theories of leadership that I've always tried to embrace, um, but particularly the notion of stewardship, and to a degree the notion of servant leadership though i personally have some difficulties with that framework so trusteeship seems to me to be worthy of our close attention and it says on my reading that leadership is entrusted to entrusted by those who follow it puts followership right in the frame trusteeship also says that leadership is not ordained by a higher authority, except perhaps truth. It is not a right arising, leadership is not a right arising from one's superiority, talent, or merit. That's why I'm still troubled by the Aristotelian frame. Leadership is a bond of trust and committed stewardship. So flip from negative to positive. Just imagine that as a new way forward for Australian corporate culture. And to close the loop, I think it offers potentially a different way of embedding those two key precepts for a 21st century management education that Datar issued in his clarion call in 2012. They are the principles of education to do